0: But we certainly do need the Lord, and uh, on this Father's Day, all of us who are dads recognize how much we need Him. We cannot do this job outside of His strength, His guidance, and His wisdom. So welcome. I'm Dave Mitchell. I'm assistant to the senior pastor here at Calvary Church. And as you all know, and as I've said numerous times, Jesus Christ is our senior pastor, our good shepherd, the senior shepherd of this church. And so I'm always glad to be under His authority, as we all are. And this morning the theme is, from Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, living free under God's authority. We've been in a series in the book of Romans, and the first uh, 11 chapters of the book of Romans has been all about being set free by Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, free from sin. And then Romans 12 begins the journey of living free, how to put that into practice. And we saw in Romans 12 some of the practical ways that we can love and care for other people. And Romans 13 now takes us into this realm of governing authorities that are over us. In fact, I'd like to read the text. You have an outline that's available for you in the uh, bulletin. And uh, you might find that of some help and assistance, especially on the back side. But in Romans chapter 13, this is in a fascinating little section of God's Word. And it really relates to a lot of what we're experiencing in our country and countries around the world. Remember that Paul the Apostle wrote this way back, um, oh, I don't know, about 50 or so A.D. and Nero would have been in uh, office for a lot of these Romans that he's writing to. And it says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, some, some things here that make some of us maybe chafe at times. But it says in Romans 13, 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an adventurer of who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So, Great little section of God's Word, and there are times when there are some of us wish that He hadn't included that in God's Word, because there are things that goes on. Now, let me set it up with this way, uh, It's exciting the other night to watch hockey, love hockey, I watched uh, two hockey games all last hockey season, but it was exciting to watch hockey play, I'm still trying to figure out what icing means, but uh, it was thrilling to watch that, but it's not one of my favorites. Basketball is pretty good in the playoffs, the last two minutes, it's the only time it's really worth watching the game. But it's fascinating to watch those things, but I can't wait till football season begins because football is really, really where it's at because every play, you could change, literally every play throughout the, the game could change the way. You see on the screen two teams. You see on the, uh, on the defense, uh, that would be the team that is on the right uh, for non-football fans, that is the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> two fans, two fans here this (laughs) morning. And then on the other side, you see the New England Patriots. Wow. These are East Coast teams, you know, since we don't have our own team. We root for other cities. But, uh, and I think that, and I'm not for sure about this, but I think that the very far, the wide receiver way out there on the left end is our own Matthew Slater. I think. I can't see the number. But it sure looks a lot like him. Because he always looks so good, he's always said to me, "Look good, play good. Look good, play good." And I take that into stock at least on Sundays when I dress. Um, so you get the two teams: you got offense, you got defense, and they are going to war. They're going to battle. They're going to hit as hard as they can. There is a fight going on in the field, and they are going to give it all they can to defeat the other team. But those are the two teams. There is a third team on the field. What's the third team that's on the field? the referees, exactly. The referees are the most powerful team on the field, right? The referees are not as skilled as the football players. They're not as rich as the football players. They're not as well-known as the football players. You don't see a lot from them throughout the season. They're sort of in the background, they're sort of forgotten, they're sort of there. We never cheer for them, but we love to boo them when they don't do the right thing, according to our opinion. But they're always in the background. But they are the most powerful authority on the field. There they are in the midst of all these high-paid, glamorous, athletic, strong football players, but the referees control the game. Now, why do the referees control the game? Because they're somebody special? No. Why are the referees in charge? Why do they have all the authority? Because somebody in the NFL in New York City determined that you are going to be a referee and whatever you say goes on the field. Another reason, not only are they given authority by the NFL, National Football League itself, they are given authority to be able to act on that field, but they also have a book And that book is the rule book for the NFL, Special Playing Rules of the National Football League. These referees, the most powerful men on the field, given authority by the offices of the NFL, are entrusted and delegated and handed off authority. But all of their authority has to be consistent with and in obedience to the NFL referee rule book. They always go by the book. Now, that's a metaphor. You get the metaphor? We're in a world where there is a war going on. There are teams on either side. There are good teams, there are bad teams. But there is a war going on. It's a spiritual war, to be sure. There's a battle that is underway. And there are two fields of play that are attacking Those of us who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, and under the authority of the senior pastor, Jesus Christ, He gives to us authority. He gives to us power. And we don't have power outside of what He gives to us, and delegates to us, and dispenses to us, but all of our authority that is given to us and the authority under which we live always has to be regulated by the book, the Bible, the words of God. We live in allegiance to and obedience to the Bible, and the authority of God's Word is the guiding force for our lives. All of that is a backdrop to set up Romans 13. Keep that in mind as we go through Romans 13. I can come back to the football thing here in just a little bit up the, towards the end. But this is the world in which we live. And God has given to all of us who are followers of Jesus a power that, used according to the Word, will give us the capacity to grasp Romans 13 a whole lot better. Now, let's get into Romans 13. Some of the things that God gives to us is this. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, He says, For there is no authority except from God, and that which exists are established by God. So the first thing that I learned from Romans 13 that I pass on here is that we're to submit to all authority because it's established by God. God is the one who does that. He establishes all authority. And those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ and under His rule, He has given to us a certain measure of authority. And those of us who are dads, He has given to us a measure of authority. And for us, becoming a father is easy, at least for the most part. Right? But living as a father is really hard. So we need to be under his authority. He has established it. In this particular case of Romans 13, there is the governing authority. And as I said, when Paul the Apostle wrote that, there was a fellow by the name of Nero who was in power. And Nero was not one who would have ever been elected if the people had a chance to vote. Nero was the kind of guy, and this is what he would do in those days, he would throw parties at his palace. And he would need light because they didn't have electricity, as you well know. So what would he do to have light in his parties? He would round up a bunch of believers like us, believers in Jesus Christ. He would plant them all around the party realm. He would pour oil on them and light them on fire. So they could provide light for his party friends. That's Nero. And then the Apostle Paul says, all authorities are established by God. And so we look at things like that and we think that, uh, boy, I've got to scratch my balding head and really think very hard about that. But that's a truism. We live by the book. If we're going to live by the book, we're not the most powerful people in the world, we're not the most athletic people in the world, we're not the richest people in the world, we're not the most famous people in the world, but like the referees, we're the most powerful people in the world because God gives to us an authority. And we live by the book because the book is always right, even if it doesn't always make sense to us. So even when Nero was in power, God has established him. Colossians 1.16 reiterates, "...for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and in- invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him." So he's talking about heavenly authorities. He's talking about earthly authorities. So they are from God. And I'm going to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And sometimes he allows authorities that are on earth, that are not always to our liking. And they're hard for us to want to live by. But I remember who's the ultimate authority, and I'm going to give you insight on that. But the second thing I noticed about this text is this. We need to recognize the cost of resisting the established authority. There is a cost... God has established, but there is a cost if we resist it. As it says in verse 2, therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. To resist the authority that God has established is to bring condemnation. There is a, there is a price to be paid. But there are times when we need to do that. Even as God establishes the authority, because God teaches in the fullness of the counsel of God's word. And again, our rule book is the Bible. It's not just Romans 13, it's the entire book. We need to read everything in light of the entire book. And in the entire book, we know there is a price to be paid. For example, if you go over to Sudan today, and many of you hopefully are aware of this dear woman, Miriam Ibrahim, who has been sentenced to death, she gave birth, what, about three or four weeks ago? And it said, we'll let you nurse your baby for two years and then we will cut your head off. Because she, according to them, has left Islam to become a Christian. She was born a Christian. She has Christian parents. And she's always been a Christian. But there's a price to be paid. If she said, I no longer have allegiance to Jesus Christ and now Muhammad is my God, she would live. There is a price to be paid. We're seeing it. Korea, North Korea, we're seeing it in Sudan, we're seeing in Iran, we're seeing around the world. The Sharia law uh, that is destroying the lives of believers, and they are being persecuted in Iraq as well. So when do you resist? How do I know when it's worth being condemned in the resistance to the ordinance that established by God? Well, one of the great passages I love in Exodus chapter one. You go way well, back, and this is Pharaoh, this is the beginning of Moses. And it says that thus the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he spoke to these Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, and the other was named Pua. And remember those names, Shiprah and Pua. If you should die before we ever meet again, make sure when you're wandering around in heaven, you're going to run into Shiprah and Pua. I'm convinced they are there. When you get there, these are two of the... Unf- remembered, unforgotten, these are the forgotten women of the Old Testament. They are two of the outstanding women, the most courageous women in the Old Testament. And here is why. The king of Egypt gives a command, king ordained by God, authority of God. And he says, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, the way they gave birth in those days, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now he left out a little portion of it for the sake of time. But what happened is that then they would go to these women. They would see a son that is born. They would let that son live. And they went back to the king of Egypt. And he says, did you did you do the job? And I, And they lied to the king of Egypt. They lied to him. They let the little boys live, the Hebrew boys live, and they went back and says, Well, we never get there in time because they're so quick and the, and the child is born it's already taken care of, so we couldn't kill the baby boys. That was an outright lie. But then notice God's response. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live after lying to the king about how They saved those boys' lives. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, He established households for them. There are times when God comes along and says, Yes, I have established the rules of the world. And sometimes He establishes the rulers and the authorities of the world. I think, and here's my interpretation, this is just Dave speaking now, this isn't... If you don't like it, uh, don't blame Jesus, okay? But I think sometimes God allows authorities in this world like the king of Egypt, like Nero, like those in Sudan, like those that have taken those 300 little girls. I think sometimes in our little micro brain that we can somehow think bigger thoughts with God, that God allows established authorities to give to us a test to find out who do you really fear. And in this particular case, they said, we fear God over the king of Egypt. We'll risk our lives for the sake of these little baby boys. And so God blessed them, and he was good to them, and he established households for them. There are times when God allows us to be tested in our allegiance and obedience to the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ. Another good example is in Acts chapter 4, when they had summoned them, this is Peter, uh, when they, and John, Peter and John, when the religious authorities summoned them, who are also the political authorities, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So the command came from the established authorities. They said, don't talk about Jesus. You cannot use His name. That was a terrible name for them in those days. He came to be Messiah. They crucified Him. They didn't believe as the Messiah. So we don't want to have the name of Jesus. Just like today. People, they take objection to the name of Jesus. But then it goes on to say this in Acts 5. When they were brought back into the authorities, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're blaming us for the death of Jesus. And Peter would have said and thought in his mind, exactly, you are the reason he's dead. And it says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Even those authorities gave them a command, don't talk about Jesus. They talked about Jesus. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. So when do you resist? When do we say we've had enough? When is civil disobedience even a biblical thing to do, if you will? There are two things I noticed in those passages and other passages could have gone on and on and on, on. And Daniel could have gone back to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobeyed King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, Throw us into the fire. Our God is able to save us in the fire, but even if He doesn't save us in the fire, we're still not going to disobey. We'll pay the price, we'll burn up in that fire. We'd rather burn up in the fire than obey King Nebuchadnezzar. And God has given us time and time examples, and often they boil down to two things that number one, I'll do whatever it takes to save human life. And in the case of Shipra and Pua, that when you meet them in heaven, let them know that old Dave down there was talking about you and bragging on you. Because they are worthy of being honored. For they're doing something that a lot of people, even in America, won't do today. Saving babies. And then secondly, to obey God's Word. Remember the referees on the field? The referees have no authority but that which is given to them by the NFL. They have no plan except the rule book that guides their field of play. And for you and me, we have no authority but what God gives to us. And we have no game plan except the Bible. And we'll never disobey God's word so that we can appease an authority or culture or society that goes against our way. So, when do you resist? to save lives, to be obedient to God's Word. And then this is so key. We need to pursue the good that God desires from all authority. We need to pursue that. It says in Romans 13, 3 and 4, I think it is, for it is a minister of God for you for good. The word good there in the text means beneficial in effect. God wants the authorities, the governing authorities, those that are established by God, they're established by God so that good, those things that benefit us in effect by its plan, will be taking place. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. God is saying that the authorities, the governing authorities, whether we elected them or not, the governing authorities are a minister. They are there to serve. And what they should be doing is moving us towards that which is good, and they should be doing that which brings wrath on that which is evil. That's what our authorities are to do. That's what you and I are supposed to do. But the governing authorities that God has placed, that's the good. Now, what is hard is when our authorities are not in obedience To biblical truth. Now, we see that all the time. We're not a theocracy, we're not a Christian nation in the sense that we're living for Jesus Christ and His uh, word and His authority and His Lordship is ruling over our leaders in our country. That that is to be clear. But the good that they should pursue is defined by God. Now, here are some of the good that God calls our leaders to pursue. For example, the good that God seeks from the governing authority is humility. God loves humility. I quote it. I printed out the, the text without turning to it. I love this passage. King Nebuchadnezzar is the man in charge of Babylon. It's during the latter days of uh, the country of Judah, and Judah is about to be destroyed. And it's about 600 B.C. and Daniel is there. Um, and here is what God says about King Nebuchadnezzar. The king reflected and says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. See, God has the authority ultimately. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is a ruler over the realm of mankind to bestow it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind. He began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagles. Feathers and his nails like bird claws. He's sort of a half man, half beast at this point. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. But his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty. Surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all of his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble Those who walk in pride. I love that story. And here's what I do. What you and I should do, if you're a follower of Jesus, I pray to God for the governing authorities from the White House to the legislature to the City Council of Santa Ana. One of the things I pray is God, oh so and so in that political office, looks like they're full of pride and they're resisting the good that you've called us to pursue. So God I'm asking for you to do to them what you did to King Nebuchadnezzar. I haven't seen it happen yet. But if one of our political leaders suddenly walks around with eagle's feathers and eating grass you know who prayed first. Just kidding. But I, I really believe it, though. I, I say it a little tongue-in-cheek, but I, I sincerely, sincerely pray it. I don't mock God with that. But I really believe that there is a lot of good that God seeks from our governing authorities and that they are not pursuing that good. And that like King Nebuchadnezzar, where God came along and says, okay, I'm going to get you humble again, that God would humble our leaders. Humility is part of the good that God seeks. We also see it's part of the good that God seeks is no unjust laws. No laws that deny justice and the rights of the needy and the poor. Talk about that. But you can read that in Isaiah 10. But let me just jump to this because it adds to that. The good that God seeks from the governing authority is this. And this Jeremiah 22 is a good illustration. It's not, it's not what we are. It's not to the nation of of America. But it is an illustration of what God looks at when He looked at the heart of those who were in office. It's a great illustration. There is no dishonesty or greed of governing authorities and do not murder innocent lives. Let me read this text. Let me throw it on the screen. This is what God looks at when He looks at the heart of leaders and the good that He wants to bring, that they are to be a minister of the good and they are to resist the evil. Jeremiah 22, 13 and 14 says this about Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was one of the last kings in Judah. He was the son of Josiah who was the righteous king. But Jehoiakim was one of the last kings of Judah, 598 B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in there and he's going to wipe out in 586 B.C. Jerusalem. So he's one of the last surviving kings. And here is why God took Jehoiakim down. And the Lord says, What sorrow awaits Jehoiakim, king of Judah, who builds his palace with forced labor? He builds injustice into its walls, for he makes his neighbors work for nothing. He does not pay them for their labor. God sees within governing rulers those who misuse their power in the stewardship of the finances of that country and when he sees this misuse that is going on he builds injustice into its walls he makes his neighbors work for nothing and I'm not gonna get lost on this tangent but for any who hire illegal immigrants and don't pay them a just wage I think that passage speaks to that issue. Whatever, you li- whatever your belief is about that, if you're going to take the authority to hire, you better have justice in pay. That's what God is saying. He makes His neighbors work for nothing. What they do is they, they would bring in slaves from other countries. They would literally bring other country people around, them, whether the Philistines, the Amalekites, they would bring them in. They would do the labor. But they wouldn't pay them. They are the illegal immigrants of that day. And that's what he was doing here. And so there is an unjust way for them in not paying for their labor. But then even more important than that is this. He says, I will build a magnificent palace with huge rooms and many windows. I will panel it throughout with fragrant cedar and paint it lovely red. Where a governing authority uses the finances of their people's taxes to really cause his own pleasure, a wasteful spending. God says, "That's something I resist." And I did resist it, resist it with joy. I can't. But a beautiful cedar palace does not make a great king. Spending money does not make a great king. Having wonderful offices for those in authority and having high salaries for those in authority does not make them a great ruler. Your father Josiah, who was a righteous king, also had plenty to eat and drink. But he was just. He was right in all of his dealings. That is why God blessed him. He gave justice and help to the poor and needy. Everything went well for him. He didn't have all that. He didn't do all that, but it went well for him. He did just things for the poor and the needy. And isn't that what it means to know me? Isn't that what it means to be that one who is an authority under my rule? But you, your eyes only for greed and dishonesty. You murdered the innocent or the NASB translates it, you shed innocent blood. You oppress the poor. You reign ruthlessly. God looks at authorities that are two things that strike me there, and there's a lot, but two things that strike me. When He puts authorities in power, and that could be us or that could be the government authorities, He expects no Dishonesty. Dishonesty. Your eyes have only for greed and dishonesty. I don't know about you, but here's a little Davism. But I'm sick and tired of those that are the governing authorities lying to us, we the people. Just sick of it. I'm just not going to vote for known liars. And that should stop. So God says, I take dishonesty as one of the reasons why he took Jehoiakim out. And it says a little bit later on, Jehoiakim was out and he says he was buried like a donkey. You know what they do with donkeys in those days? I was hiking down the Grand Canyon, uh, actually have a Supai canyon, and what they do with the donkeys, they're going down the trail, the donkey dies, they just push him over the side of the cliff and it tumbles all the way down to the bottom of the canyon. And you can look over the side of the, of the uh, trail, you walk down, you see these dead donkeys laying down at the bottom. That's what God says I did to Jehoiakim. I buried him like a donkey because of this. The second thing, you murder the innocent. You take innocent blood. And we have a nation, and this, I'm not going to get political, but I am going be, to be biblical. We have a nation that has a problem of taking innocent blood of unborn babies. We have a big problem with that. We have institutions that are doing that. We have funding that goes to that. We have a president that blesses those who does those things. That is very contrary to, to God's Word. We live by the rule book. And it's not always what everybody's popular with. But it's how God has called us to live that way. Let me give you an example of a man who believes in the good that government authorities and the government can actually do. Because we need good government. We really do. Because God establishes that. Samuel Adams. What comes to your mind when you think of Samuel Adams on Father's Day? Yes. Thank you, all you historians. You're wonderful. It had passed through my mind that this be Father's Day. Wouldn't it be intriguing that every dad gets a Samuel Adams beer? I decided not to do it for two reasons. Number one, it's Sunday morning. And number two, I need this job. So those are, those are always my two guiding forces that you probably have heard me say before. But yes... That's what we think of today, and if you're a sports fan, you probably have seen the ads that are out there. I've never tasted Samuel Adams beer. I'm not a, I'm not a beer drinker. I'm not even an alcohol drinker. I just know it's just, I don't know. What it is. It's all another thing. This is the Samuel Adams I had in mind. This guy lived in the 1700s, and he has been considered the father of the American Revolution when our country rebelled militarily against the control of Great Britain. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He's a man that Thomas Jefferson said was one of the most instrumental leaders in the formation of our country. But he's often forgotten because he's considered to be a beer. He actually, it's been, it's been said that he was a brewer of beer in those days. He got the malt and stuff. And, uh, anyways. But I want to show you some of the things that are good that I would love to see and that God has called us to that is the good that God charges us to have as a minister in the government that does good that resists evil. Here are some of those comments. While the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. Virtue, character, godliness. But once they lose their virtue, they will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. We live by a rule book that guides us. The right of freedom is the gift of God Almighty. The rights of the colonists of Christians may be best understood by reading, carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver, the head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. You don't hear politicians using that as part of their slogans of today. Not turning us into a theocracy. Not turning us into a Christian nation in the sense that we're followers in the lordship of Jesus Christ and everybody's a believer in Jesus. No. This man was a Harvard grad. He went to Harvard University at age 14. He's a smart guy, right? Then he said this. Nothing is more essential to the establishing of the manners in the state than all persons employed in the places of power and trust must be men of unexceptional character. That is the good. But then he followed it up with this. He who is void of virtuous attachments in private life is or very soon will be void of all regard for his country. There is seldom an instance of a man guilty of betraying his country who had not before lost feeling of moral obligations in his private connections. Before Dr. Benjamin Church Jr. was detected of holding a criminal correspondence with the enemies of his country, his infidelity to his wife had been notorious. I love it when they name names. There is part of me that just wishes that any unrepentant adulterer would be found out before we ever elect them to office. Because if they can't be faithful to the wife as Samuel Adams says, and who would disagree with Samuel Adams? Not me. Then how can they ever be faithful to their country? And it's not just a matter of sex. It's not just sex. It's character. It's character trait. Thank you for your smattering of applause. This morning during my daily devotions, I was watching ESPN uh, Sports Center, <laughs> and uh, it's just part of the routine. It's part of the full character uh, development. <laughs> and uh, up popped this is about like 6:30, 6:29, if you're watching Sports Center this morning. About 6:30 this morning, they were interviewing Mark Schleroff. Mark Schleroff is not probably a name that a lot of us know. He was a guard for something like 12 years with uh, uh, two football teams. One was the Washington Redskins. And they do a lot of assessment. He's one of the experts they bring on and talk about football and things like that. His Father's Day. He has a son, Daniel, who's playing in the big leagues of base, baseball. And the two uh, men and the woman of ESPN uh, uh, host people, they ask Mark, hey, What's one of the things the coaches taught you? What are some of the priorities the coaches taught you as you came into the league and played in the league? And Mark Schlerf said this. I came into the league as a rookie in 1989. Joe Gibbs was my coach with the Washington Redskins. And we had our first team meeting. I sat there. And I, was, I wanted to be the, the rookie of the year that year, he said. I thought I was so great so we sat there in the locker room a lot of buzz and then in walks Joe Gibbs and as soon as Joe Gibbs walks in it just gets real quiet and Mark says I was sitting there on the front row with my pad out and I was ready to take down everything Joe Gibbs said because I want to be the best rookie out there and so Joe Gibbs starts talking and this is what Mark says Joe Gibbs said men we have three priorities in this team you should have these three priorities yourself priority number one keep a right relationship with God. Priority number two, keep a right relationship with your family. Priority number three, have a right relationship with the football team. And then Joe said, Men, if you can't get number one right and number two right, you're never going to get number three right. And Mark Slareff was relating this. This was back in 1989. As Mark is sharing this, he gets all choked up. He almost starts crying as he's relating what he had learned, what, 30-something years ago or so. It's incredible that God can impact us to realize that, yes, the character of our rightness with Him is reflected in the rightness with our family that ultimately then is the rightness with all that we do. Samuel Adams said that a long time ago. If you don't have it right with God, if you don't have it right with your family, how can you ever have it right with the country that you claim to govern in authority. So God calls us to that kind of good. That's the good that God calls us to. And that's the good that God calls leaders. And you and I, we better be literate voters, we better be prayerful voters, we better be knowledgeable voters about the issues and the people that are before us because it changes the ordinance of God as to who is in authority. We get what we deserve. So God calls us to that. Now finally, We need to discern to do that which is right. So we discern between all those things and Paul wraps it up with this one verse. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And it changes and it changes. We should pay our taxes. We're obligated to pay our taxes. We're obligated to be honest on the tax forms. That is the standard. Custom, there are other laws, other regulations that God calls us to. Fear, absolutely. Fear the police force. Fear those who are in authority over us. Honor them and respect them. And that's what God calls us to. But then I go back to this, what Jesus said. This is the balancing act. But Jesus perceived the malice of these religious leaders. He says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And they said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And then so Jesus, this mastermind of brilliance, when they're trying to him, capture him to betray the governing authorities so the government would come along and crucify him for betraying Caesar, the, the God of the, of the nation, certainly of Rome, And so Jesus says, No, you just take that coin out and you look at whatever image is on that coin, and whatever image is on that coin you owe allegiance to. And the image on the coin has authority. Now, I've given to you, you should have received, guys, when you came in this morning, a coin. And on that particular coin, I want you to draw attention to it. On the one side, you see on the coin, it says, In Christ I am. In Christ I am. Strong, courageous, loved, and holy. And there is the Jerusalem cross that is on that coin. I described for you on the back side of the Digging Deeper, of uh, the outline, what the Jerusalem cross is. It's a combination of the Old Testament teachings, the four towel co- crosses, and the New Testament teachings, the four Greek crosses. The four Gospels are the four directions in which the Word of God spread. And the five crosses representing the five wounds of Christ on the cross. And so men, I want you to take that and have that as one side that reflects that in Christ I am these things. He has given to me this capacity. He has given to me that imprint of His power. On the other side of the coin, as you turn it over, it looks sort of that mirrored look and it says, I am conformed to the image of His Son. Romans eight twenty nine, God predestined us to be saved, to be conformed to the image of the Son of Jesus Christ and He calls us to that. In Romans 8, 29. And the reason we didn't put anything on the center of that coin is that it would leave that sort of that mirror. And you see sort of a blurred image of yourself in there. And frankly, I look better as a blurred image than in the real mirror. <laughs> but that image of us is the imprint that God says, you bear this authority. You bear this power. You are conformed to Christ. The image on the coin represents the power and the authority. And when you see your image in the mirrored part, you bear the authority of Christ as well. And what God is calling us to, I think, in Romans 13, and this Father's Day especially, and for those of us who are dads, is to live to the standard that is already ours. That in Christ, I am courageous. I am holy. I am love. I have that authority. I live by the rule book. I live by the Word of God. And I will carry out that authority under the reign of Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, I'm conformed to His image. Men, let's be conformed to the image of Christ. Because it's already there. It's already there. We don't have to ask for it. We don't have to work hard to get it. It's there. Let's let Christ in us be lived out and bear His image wherever we are, wherever we go. We encourage you to take this coin with you. If you're a golfer, use it as a marker for your golf ball. (laughs) If you, well, there are many ways you can use that coin as a reminder of who God is and who you are in Christ. And like the referees, we bear the image of the authority that God gives to us so the good of His righteousness, His holiness, can be lived out through us. Let's be men like that. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you've given to us the opportunity to live for you. Lord, that you have given to governing authorities a power over us, and yet there is a good that should be represented and reflected in what they do. I pray that we who are your followers, who bear your image, would live according to that same authority And that we would carry it out for the good of others as well. For the needy. For the poor. For the just. For honesty. For saving lives. That we would be courageous and holy and beloved and loved and living for you. God, help us to bear your image well. Because we already have it. And live up to that wonderful standard by the strength of your spirit. Who gives to us the power be your child. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.